Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Advent, which was taught to help us celebrate Advent in 2020. Advent is a time to reflect upon the coming of Christ and how He is the source of true hope, peace, love, and joy. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. text today, which is from John 15, verses 9 to uh, 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Let me tell you a story. There once was a wonderful kingdom with a good king who was wise beyond all understanding. And in the castle lived a handsome prince who was as fair as he was brave, and everyone in the kingdom lived happily ever after. The end. Did you like my story? Of course not. Even a five-year-old knows that's not how a story goes. There's no hero. There's no dragon. There's no hero's journey through danger and hardship. There's there's no redemption. And yet, there's a growing number of people today in America who insist the point of life, the meaning of life, really, is nonstop happiness. It's to avoid pain, dispense with tension, ignore anxiety. They're the modern Epicureans who say, whatever satisfies my pleasure is, at this moment, the highest good. But if your idea of happiness is is never to experience pain or difficulty, then you have a problem because that's not how life works. Writers and filmmakers have told a million stories over thousands of years. They've written billions of words and created millions of worlds. And not one has been successful pushing a saccharine kind of happiness like the one that I described in our fairy tale. Because mostly we want a hero who ends the story better than he started it. We want redemption. That doesn't happen when there are no challenges, no conflicts, no hardships to overcome. It doesn't happen unless a, a hero meets the chaos and the, and the pain and, 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 and the suffering and survives it. But even more, unless he's transformed so that killing the dragon and, and winning the princess and and, and, and winning her love makes all the pain and danger and terror worth it. It's not so much that God has programmed us to think this way, it's that we think this way because this is how life is. We know a life without grief or, or pain or, or heartache or difficulty or failure is false. And while false may be acceptable in our politics and, and in our nightly news, it's uh, never satisfying in our entertainments. How then to explain the the rise of these new Epicureans, the people who want life without suffering? It's It's as though our prosperity has produced a kind of numbness or or comfort that dulls us to the need for pain and suffering. Pleasure is so available to us, we've retreated from the kind of courageous interactions that, that make life worth living not that way in many places. 
where people still suffer, where death happens out in public, where people are shielded, aren't shielded from pain. The, the desire for happiness goes back to, to Adam, probably, maybe all the way back to Satan. We, we all want pleasure and happiness. Blaise Pascal was a scientist and mathematician and a great thinker in the 1600s. He wrote this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Pascal says, you're motivated by a desire to be happy, and so am I. Even if you decide to kill yourself, you do so because you want to escape the pain of life. And so often, escaping pain and, and anxiety is what people think about happiness. Those are the new Epicureans. Epicurus was a, uh, Epicurus was a, a Greek philosopher around the third century before Christ. And, and essentially, Epicurus said the, the greatest goal of life is to rid the body of pain and, and the soul of trouble. Today, Epicurus, somewhat I think unfairly, has become shorthand for the idea of pleasure for pleasure's sake. But that describes a lot of people who believe happiness and pleasure are their birthright, that, that, uh, that it's, it, it should come naturally. But then when, when reality smashes their pleasure and, and steals their happiness, they shake their fist at the universe and, and cry that it's unfair. Many times in your life, you're not going to be happy. And then what are you going to do? If happiness and pleasure-seeking are, are what define your values, then when hardship comes, your, your value system will be crushed. And, and there'll be plenty of times when that happens. Sometimes that reality lasts for years. Given our own polarized times, it's probably not a surprise that uh, uh, an opposing faction uh, rep, uh, arose to, to, to contend with the Epicureans. They were the, the Stoics. And the Stoics said it was so obviously not the natural state of man to be happy, there must be some other meaning to life. The Stoics said satisfaction and the absence of pain are great, but enjoy them while you can because pain's coming back. The Stoics said the real purpose of life must be something like attaining virtue and, and worldly wisdom by accepting the pain and working through it. Why do I bring all this up? Well, these were the two fundamental philosophical alternatives in the Roman world at the birth of Christianity. Remember Paul in Acts 17, he, he goes off to Mars Hill to, to the Areopagus and, and he debates with the philosophers there. He was debating with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, and Christianity pretty much won that debate. And, and for about 1,400 years or so, Christian philosophy and Christian values pretty much informed the way we thought about things in the West. But then in the 18th and 19th centuries, a new batch of philosophers came along and they popularized new ideas. And probably one of the most influential of those uh, philosophers was a man named Friedrich Nietzsche, who in the 19th century uh, just became terribly prominent as a philosopher. It's hard to overestimate, in fact, the impact Nietzsche had on the, on, on the times. Really, I think his philosophy just overwhelmed all the great thinkers of the West, the, the philosophers, the theologians, the psychologists, the poets, the playwrights, the novelists, just about all of them were influenced by Nietzsche. In fact, I don't think it's too big a stretch to suggest that Nietzsche put the final 
nail in the coffin of European religion. Because while there were a lot of atheist philosophers in the 19th century, it was Nietzsche who declared God was dead and that great thinkers of the 18th and 19th century had killed him. Nietzsche went on to insist that not only was God a superstitious creation of ignorant men, but the entire value system of the Christian faith was false. Nietzsche and those he influenced pretty much overthrew the entire Christian moral order. And ironically, they, they didn't offer much of a framework to replace it, to, at least no moral framework that you could call based on objective truth or, or universal. In fact, just the opposite, because it was Nietzsche's view that, that once the Christian value system was discredited, it, it wouldn't usher in a different value system, that once you came to believe the Christian values weren't true, you wouldn't be able to believe any values were true. He said the result of people rejecting universal objective values would be that they'd rally instead around strong men, men he called uh, uh, people with a will to power. Nietzsche was right about that, uh, as far as that went. Less than two generations after his death, Europe and most of the world were plunged into a hellscape of war and hatred and, and death. Totalitarian, to, totalitarianism and atrocity and, and a genocide pretty much came to define the 20th century. Less than 20 years after Nietzsche's death, uh, the Bolsheviks uh, rebelled in, in Russia. And eventually, Soviet communism killed 70 million people. A few years later, the Nazis and the fascists uh, ignited a world war that killed close to 80 million people. And after the war, the communists came to power in China and, and a whole bunch of countries in that region, and they, between them, killed another 100 million people. Nietzsche might have been appalled by the death tolls, but he wouldn't have been surprised. He, he knew the collapse of Christian values would mean a free-for-all among despots and, and thugs. But he also predicted a comeback for the Epicureans and the Stoics. And that's pretty much where we find ourselves today. We're, we're back on Mars Hill, back in the Areopagus. Back in Paul's time, the Stoics were the majority. Today, it's pretty much the Epicureans. Why do I say that? The Epicureans, um, I think, are the majority today. And one reason is the way we accuse God. Woody Allen famously, famously says, if God exists, I hope he has a good excuse. Woody, Woody Allen is saying, God can't be both good and powerful because such a God wouldn't allow so much pain. Isn't it odd that somebody as prosperous, as successful, as, as famous, as, as Woody Allen, somebody who's led as charmed a life as him, says God better have a good excuse? Maybe the only thing more odd is that people who drink lattes at Starbucks and eat $18 avocado toast are also angry with God. I can tell you, though, that there are parts of the world where there's real suffering. And, and in those parts of the world, they wouldn't understand a single word of Woody Allen's sarcasm. It's really us, the, the most prosperous, who tend to focus on pain and can't imagine the reasons and, and seldom consider the blessings we've been given. 
Another uh, evidence for the success of the new Epicureans in our, in our society is the trending repudiation of responsibility. So many people in the West today just don't want to grow up. And I'm not talking about the 30-year-old who still lives in his mom's basement, though you may know some of them. But, but look at the marriage rate. The marriage rate in the West is, has reached its lowest point in recorded history. Fewer people than ever are willing to make a real commitment beyond their own convenience and pleasure. And partly because of the lack of stable marriages and partly because they can't be bothered, we also have fewer children being born uh, today than ever. And I'm talking globally. The, the birth rate in 1950 was 4.5 births per woman. Today, it's less than half that. In most countries in the world, at least in the West, we're not having enough babies to replace the population that's dying. The good news about that is that single women are having fewer pregnancies. The bad news is that when a woman does get pregnant and she's single, uh, abortion is easier than ever. 125,000 babies die violently each day in the womb which is startling when you consider there's only about 150,000 people worldwide who die each day outside the womb. Here's another thing that shows the rise in Epicurean. It's the, it's the rise in grievance. Everyone is aggravated all the time. If you believe pleasure is the ultimate good, then when somebody interferes with that pleasure, you're triggered, you're victimized, you, you find microaggression and grievance everywhere you turn. Those who disagree with your, your views aren't just your opponents. They're your enemies. They're, they're evil. No wonder our politics is so polarized and our courts are so crowded. If, if somebody interferes with your pleasure, sue them. But Epicureans aren't the only ones making a comeback. The, the Stoics are rising, too, led by thinkers like Jordan Peterson. Now, I like Jordan Peterson. I listen to him all the time. He's got a great podcast. I think he's one of the most brilliant, maybe the deepest thinker um, among the psycho-philosophical uh, uh, leaders, think, thinkers today. Um, but P Peterson is an atheist who agrees with the old Stoics. He says pleasure can't be the meaning of life because there's so little of it. Instead, it must be gaining virtue. The, the Stoics' idea of virtue, by the way, is generally founded on four pillars worldly wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. The Stoic says, says accept the moment. There's, there's suffering. There, there is a dark valley. But don't be an Epicurean and flee from the valley because there's something meaningful to be learned there. There's virtue. And if you flee, you'll miss it. For the secular world today, these are generally the two paths on offer. The Stoic's commitment to finding happiness through work and the Epicureans looking for happiness through pleasure-seeking. Back in the first century, Paul suggested a third way. Paul offered them Jesus. And Acts says the philosophers can't believe their ears. This Paul is talking about foreign gods from out of this world. Then, then Paul really blows their minds, and he talks about resurrection. He describes how Jesus was raised from the dead. But the thing about Paul's message, he, he wasn't just offering a different opinion on the old problems that they'd been dealing with. He was bringing them good news, new news that they hadn't heard before. See, the Epicureans and the Sto Stoics then and, and now aren't in the news business. They're in the self-help business. They're in the 
advice business. Maybe you've heard about Jordan Peterson's uh, book, Maps of Meaning. It's brilliant, by the way, and it's full of great advice. In Maps of Meaning, Jordan, Jordan Peterson offers us 12 rules for living, and that's not bad when you consider Moses uh, only gave, gave us 10 commandments. P Peterson goes 20% better than God, but let me say, let me just say, each and every one of Peterson's rules for living is terrific advice. But none of them are good news. And there's a difference. Paul was reporting what had happened, what God had done. The Epicureans and the Stoics were spending their days arguing over points of view. Good advice is good, but it's not enough to save your life and give you real happiness. We all need good advice, but we need good news more. And this is the good news Paul brings. You can't do it yourself. You can't make yourself happy, and you can't make yourself virtuous. But Jesus is the virtuous man, the blessed man of Psalm 1, who keeps the law perfectly. He enters your world and your life. He, he takes on himself your failures and, and faults and weaknesses and all the ways you fall short. He takes your sin and evil and cowardice and hurt, and he takes it all where it belongs right down to the depths of hell. And then he rises up again to a new kind of life, and he, and he invites you to be part of it. And you learn it's nothing you have to strive for. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ isn't advice. The gospel doesn't mean advice. It means good news. And the gospel Paul preached was a huge comfort to both the Epicureans and the and the Stoics. For the Epicureans, it meant that when suffering came, when sickness or pain or heartache or heartache or failure crushed their pleasure, they could see another way to happiness that didn't depend on their circumstances. What does the Epicurean do with cancer? Chemo isn't pleasurable. And, and besides, the best chemo can do is bring you back to even. The worse you die. In either event, the, the Epicurean's reason for existence pleasure, happiness, the absence of pain, they're all blown out. Christianity is different. The Christian knows God suffers cancer with you, then redeems that cancer by going into the valley of death and purchasing for you a greater good, a greater hope than anything you had even before the cancer. Christ is better than chemo because he doesn't bring you back to even. He ends suffering and death. He enters into it. He champions your cause and puts a stake through suffering and death. He walks through the valley of death, comes out the other side glorified, renewed, better. He shows us that suffering is worth it because the end point is so much better than the beginning point and that the valley is just part of the journey. So the gospel was a great comfort to the Epicureans whose value systems were were crushed when bad times came. But the gospel was also a great comfort to the Stoics, who believed happiness was found in mastering virtue. Look, none of us is who, sh who we should be, and, and we're painfully aware of it. We can't even live up to our own standards of right and wrong most of the time. Sure, you have your good days when you think you've done well, and you pat yourself on the back, and, and you think God owes you, but then you have a bad day, and you realize you're not who you should be, in fact, you're not even who you thought you were. But the gospel says your failures don't have to crush you. Paul brought the Stoics the good news about a, a perfect God who became man, led the life they could not, 
was virtuous beyond anything they could imagine, and then offered to exchange that virtue for their faults, their failures, their, their shortcomings. We all want wisdom, justice, honor, moderation, like the Stoics, but, but what about love? What about mercy? Where's the compassion that gives itself up for another? Wisdom, justice, courage, moderation, they're fine, but where's the sacrifice, the humility, the goodness? Where's the love? The Epicureans and the Sto Stoics each held their separate worldviews. The good news is a worldview too, but it's so much more than that. The good news is a person who came to not just gird you up and mentor you and make you stronger. He, he does those things, but he does more. He comes to share in your suffering, to descend into the pit with you, to take your tears on himself, and then he does the unthinkable. He turns your pit into paradise. He turns your tears into blessings. And he remakes your sufferings into joy. And he does something more. He answers the question the philosophers couldn't. The problem that has confronted mankind since we were tossed out of the garden. Jesus, once and for all, deals with the problem of death. The Epicureans don't deal with death. They ignore it. They claim it doesn't matter that, that uh, once you can no longer feel pleasure, uh, nothing matters. Since there's no pain in death, there's, there's no issue. The Stoics, on the other hand, argue that death is real and it's terrifying. And so you have to live a, a life meaningful enough to justify your existence. Pursue duty and honor. Make your bed. Fix your family. Those are the choices the world offers. Ignore death or accept it. How does somebody like Woody Allen handle death? When he was asked how he felt about living in, in his work and in the hearts of his fans, Woody said this, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on, the, live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Bad news for Woody Allen, he's going to die. And there's only one person who can rescue him, the, the creator of life who pours his life out for others. That's the Christian's answer. Remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? He weeps. He doesn't accept death like the Stoics, and, and he doesn't ignore it like the Epicureans. His, his friend has died. Death is the enemy. It, it's an enemy we've made inevitable by our sin, but death isn't the way God made things. And Christ doesn't leave us in the tomb. He conquers the tomb. The Epicurean says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Christian says, tomorrow we die. Then we can eat, drink, and be merry. Which vision do you think brings the most happiness now and in the life to come? And which empowers us to do the most good while we're here? I can sacrifice com comfort and even pleasure today because I know there's a greater treasure to come. I can love others because... My hero has gone on the journey ahead of me. He's tread the path through the valley, and he's promised me he'll meet me on the other side with a feast. The Christian doesn't accept death. We hate death. We know it's not a natural thing. It's a foreign thing brought by our own evil and our, our wickedness, our corruption. But we also know the one who's conquered evil and wickedness and corruption and death. Today, you can pour yourself out 
knowing a better future is around the corner. You can invest now, because past the valley, you'll eat, drink, and be merry. Remember, remember the story we started with? The story of a wonderful kingdom with a, a good king and a handsome prince where everybody lives happily ever after? That's not the story. This is the story. There's a wonderful kingdom with a good king who's wise beyond anything we can understand. And in the castle, there does live a good and, and loving prince as brave as he is fair. But the people of the kingdom betrayed the king. They entered in league with a terrible dragon, and they conspired to put themselves on the throne of the king. That dragon was a relentless force of chaos and destruction. But the good prince loved the people, and he hated the dragon. And so he ventured out to slay the dragon and save his people. And along the way, he suffered trials you and I can't even begin to understand. But he overcame every trial, and he met every challenge, and he did it all perfectly. And then he entered the abyss, and he fought for you. He died for you. And then he rose again, and he did it not so he would be better, but so that you could be better. And now he wants to bring you back home to the kingdom and to the king. But not just bring you home, back where you started. He wants to bring you back into the castle. He wants to make you part of the royal family. He, he wants to make you his sister, his brother, a child of his father. He wants to make you a joint heir with everything he owns. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has sent you the greatest invitation you'll, you'll ever receive. It's, it's an invitation to join him in a kingdom ruled by the God of love. Usually about now we talk about how to apply the lesson. I'm going to let C.S. Lewis do that. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes the relationship between father, son, and spirit as a dance. He says, God is a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the father and the son is a live, concrete thing and this union itself is also a person. But here's the thing. The son has taken your hand. He wants to lead you onto the dance floor. The father, the son, they don't want to keep you, to keep their love all to themselves. They don't want you on the outside looking in. They want you there with them, enjoying all the love of God. Lewis goes on, and now what does it matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is being played out in each of us. Or putting it the other way around, each of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in the dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we are made. Lewis writes, this is the most important thing in the world. You, you, will you accept the invitation on offer? If you want the happiness your heart longs for, you must. There is no other way. We're made for happiness because that's who God is. The Epicureans are, are almost right. The gospel says happiness is possible, but the, the Epicureans are all wrong because it doesn't come from us. It, it comes from the one who made us, who loves us, who invites us into his love. How do we do it? How do we accept the invitation to joy that Christ offers? Lewis says, keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing if you, in you that has not died 
will be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and everything else thrown in. What's Lewis saying? He's saying that joy and happiness and blessing may be the ends, but they're never the means. They're byproducts of a greater cause, a greater meaning. Jesus never says, seek blessing and you'll be blessed. Here's what he says. He says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4. He says, those who look to him uh, for help will be radiant with joy, Psalm 34, 5. He says, whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he, Proverbs 16, 20. Lewis says, Look for Christ and you'll find him and everything else thrown in. The same is true for joy. It's a, it's a byproduct of a greater endeavor. Aim for Christ and you get redemption and happiness and immeasurable, amazing, infinite joy. But if you aim only for happiness alone, you'll get neither Christ nor happiness. That's the hero's journey. It's no fairy tale. It, it satisfies because it's real. It's the true story of your salvation. You can make the journey because your hero is the Lord Almighty Jesus Christ, and he's made the journey for you. He's pioneered the way, and now Jesus beckons you, follow me. And if you will, he promises you all the happiness and joy you were made for. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have made joy possible. And not just possible, but certain in our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us our desire for empty pleasures or our false hope that we can find virtue in ourselves. Help us see ourselves vividly enough that we know our desperate need. And, and then lead us to Jesus Christ, who's already answered our need with broken body and shed blood and who now waits to embrace us and lead us home. In his name, amen. And now a benediction. If you'd rise with me. Our benediction comes from Jude, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault, and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.